Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Miriam Knoll, or you might know me as Mimi Knoll, which is how everyone calls me. I am president of JOMA, and today I am guest hosting the JOMA podcast. It's my pleasure to have as a guest today, Dr. Meira Abramowitz, who is an assistant professor of medicine and attending physician at the Jill Roberts Center for Inflammatory Bowel Disease at Whale Cornell. And she sees patients at the Well Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian, both at the Upper East Side location and the Lower Manhattan location. Welcome, Dr. Abramowitz. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about a topic that is certainly very interesting to me as a radiation oncologist, um, and I know to yourself also as a gastroenterologist. But I think, and I imagine you would agree with me, this is a topic that's really important for everyone colorectal cancer screening. There are a lot of interesting updates, which I know we'll have a chance to talk about. So I wanted to start first by asking you a very general question. What is a colonoscopy? So a colonoscopy is a way that we're able to screen for colon cancer. Um, Essentially, what is it? So it's a long black tube with a camera and a light at the end. And we use that to look through the whole colon to look for things called polyps. Polyps are little outpouching of the colon wall, and that occurs in about 25% of the human population. And when we find them, then we remove them. Those particular polyps in some people can become colon cancer. And that's why in this particular procedure, we're able to find these polyps, which are precancerous lesions, and remove them before they become cancer. So basically, a colonoscopy, um, would you call it screening or would you call it prevention or both? And what's the difference? I would actually say it's both. So a screening test is where we are able to pick up, um, you know, certain diseases before they become the disease. And, um, you know, as opposed to um, other tests that we pick up early cancers, which obviously we're able to pick up early cancers with a colonoscopy. But the main thing about the colonoscopy that makes it special and different than other um, cancer screenings is that it actually prevents cancer. And that's why it's actually a screening test and also prevention. In a lot of the other um, cancer screenings that we do, we're not able to pick up pre-cancerous lesions. We can pick up early cancer, this early cancer detection, and we're able to remove them. In this particular case, we're picking up um, polyps, which are pre-cancer. They're completely not cancer, and we're able to remove them before they become cancer. So that's why it's actually considered to be both screening and prevention. Great. So yeah, so, you know, I treat a lot of breast cancer, for example. So with a mammogram, right, we're picking up lesions that either are cancer or maybe assumed to be cancer, like a ductal carcinoma in situ, right? But 
we can only find it on a mammogram. We can't actually remove it on the mammogram, right? A patient would have to go for a biopsy and then a surgery. The beauty with the colonoscopy is that if there is a polyp there, you would remove it at that time. And, you know, you're kind of getting, you're killing two birds with one stone, right? Correct. Yes. When we find polyps, we're able to remove them in lots of different ways. But that the end result is that the polyp is not there anymore. And the risk of that particular polyp becoming cancer becomes practically zero because it's not there anymore. The interesting development over the last couple of years, and I know just recently the national guidelines have changed, I'd love for you to explain to our audience why the guidelines change that first screening colonoscopy should be undergone at age 45 and not as before, which was age 50. True. For years, the, um, the screening age of colonoscopy was age 50. <clears throat> and that's when we would have all the primary care doctors encourage patients to come get their colonoscopies. But what we've found in the recent years is that starting from age about 20 or 25 until 50, there are actually an increasing um, number of colon cancers that have been found. Um, we don't know exactly why that's happening, why in the recent years there's an increasing number of colon cancer found in the younger population. Um, we don't know if it's a, you know, some, a trend that just is going to continue going. We don't know if it's because we've been doing colonoscopies more on younger people now than we have been in the past. So in the past, if you had someone less than 50 who came to their doctor and said they were having rectal bleeding, they were told, oh, you know, you're too young for a colonoscopy. It's probably nothing. It's probably hemorrhoids. And colonoscopies were not done on younger people. In the recent years, when you have a younger person who's having rectal bleeding, a lot of them were getting colonoscopies because their doctor just wanted to make sure. And then lo and behold, you have these cancers that are being found. We have to weigh the risks and the benefits of doing colonoscopies at certain, um, you know, at certain ages. We don't want to do colonoscopies on every 20-year-old that has rectal bleeding, but we also don't want to miss all the colon cancers that could be found in the 47-year-old. So based on recent studies, they found that by starting at age 45, that it's a good age to be able to pick up a good number of those cancers that are found before age 50 without doing unnecessary screenings. Yeah, I love how you explained that. I, I similarly, you know, explain to my patients, you know, it's always about risk versus benefits and what are the risks of doing the screening and what are the risks of not doing the screening? What are the benefits of doing the screening? What are the benefits of not doing the screening? We could theoretically do a colonoscopy on 10-year-olds, right? And 20-year-olds and 25, right? At what age does it make sense to start doing mammograms, doing colonoscopies, doing... MRI, you know, some patients ask, well, why don't you just scan my body once a month, right? And look for cancers and then we'll just find everything. Right. So the answer is. Right. And a lot, a lot of them do that. <laughs> you know, then you find what we call, you know, incidentalomas yeah. as in, which is essentially in layman's terms, that means things that have no significance, but they're found and then we don't even know what to do with them. So, you know, you always only want to do something that's going to have enough benefit, and that's why studies were done to figure out what the 
proper ages. And who knows? In the future, it may be lowered again. They may find that doing colonoscopies on every 45-year-old may not even be worth it, and the risks may be more than the benefits. As of now, it's 45, but based on, you know, research is constantly evolving, and we would figure out what the best thing is over time. But for now, it seems that 45 is a good age to start to find enough colon cancers. Yeah, so I can definitely say from my own experience treating patients that we're definitely seeing patients with colorectal cancer in their 40s. And often because their doctors and they themselves weren't even thinking that what they were experiencing may have been related to a cancer, these patients often get diagnosed with advanced cancers instead of what the smaller cancer would have been at the time if they had gotten a colonoscopy at a younger age. So, you know, that's really what we're discussing here, right? right? So, you know, we're not going to start doing right. colonoscopy on every 20-year-old or every 30-year-old, but since we were clearly missing so many patients in their the 45 to 50 age bracket, it made sense to recommend colonoscopy for this age group right. so that we catch cancers earlier instead of so many 45, 46, 47, 48, 49-year-olds getting diagnosed with advanced cancers. Right. And I just want to um, uh, take note that, you know, this age 45 is for people who are what we call average risk for colon cancer, which means they don't have a family history of colon cancer. The guidelines are actually different for people who have a family history of colon cancer. Um, so anyone who has somebody in their family, specifically a first degree relative or a second degree relative with his, with colon cancer, or what we call an advanced polyp, as in their doctor said, you have a polyp, it was big, we took it out, it wasn't cancer, but make sure to tell your family members that they need to have colon cancer screening, a colonoscopy. That would actually make someone at an increased risk, and they would actually need colonoscopies at younger ages. So either at age 40, not 45, or 10 years younger than the diagnosis of that family member. So if they have a family member who were diagnosed with colon cancer at age 40, as in like a first degree relative, for example, um, they actually would need a colonoscopy starting from age 30. So they always need to bring it up with their doctors about when their family member had colon cancer and it needs to be brought up with their gastroenterologist to decide when is the right time for them to have colon cancer screening. Right. So, you know, just to reiterate, you know, first of all, I want to explain the first degree versus second degree relative, because I know it could be some of our audience isn't sure what the difference is. A first degree relative is oh, someone's true. parent, sibling, no or child. So a parent, sibling, or a child would be a first degree relative. And a second degree relative would be uncles, aunts, nephews, nieces, grandparents, grandchildren, half-siblings, and cousins. So, you know, those are, or actually double cousins, if you share 25%. So basically a, a closer relative or a not as close relative, right? Um, and, and we were talking about risk. So for someone who's average risk, we're going to start screening at age 45. But for someone who has a reason for us to be more worried about them developing a cancer at a younger age. We wouldn't want to wait to 45. We'd want to start earlier, as early as 10 years before 
the person who had cancer was diagnosed, right? So that could even be 30, right? Or 35. Let's say Correct. somebody, let's say somebody's father Correct. was diagnosed. Let's give an example. Let's say somebody's father was diagnosed at age 45 with the colorectal cancer. So their child would get screened at age 35, right? Correct. Great. And let's say somebody's mother was diagnosed with a colon cancer at age 55, even though 10 years before would mean age 45, we wouldn't want them to start screening later than age 40, right? Correct. Okay. So it's either age 40 so, or yeah. 10 years younger than the relative was diagnosed, whichever one is younger. Right. Okay, great. Which, correct. Yeah. Whichever one, whichever number comes first. Right. And because a lot of times this may be a little bit confusing to the person, what, you know, what people need to do is to bring it up with their doctor, describe, you know, which family members had the cancer at what ages, and then their doctor would help them figure out when the time is that they need to start their colonoscopies. And would you say that most patients who come to you get, you know, they sort of self-refer, they, you know, pick up the phone and say, I need to see a GI or... Do they have this discussion with their primary care doctor and their primary care doctor recommends that they see you? Like what's most common for you in terms of scheduling colonoscopies or these? I think for me, for me, it's mostly people get referred mm -hmm. uh, by their primary. Um, but in the recent times with um, a lot of the advertisements, both on TV, on the internet, you know, a lot of people are aware of the starting age for screening colonoscopies. So more and more, I'm getting people who are being self-referred because they say, you know, I've read, I've heard that, you know, I'm 45 years old or in the past is, you know, I'm 50, I'm 51 years old, um, you know, as my, my friend, the TV, I'm getting more and more of those that people self-refer because they heard that they're at the age that they should have a colonoscopy. That's really good news. I'm glad to hear that. Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about someone who's average risk, right? So someone who doesn't know that they are at higher risk and, you know, they don't have a relative who had colorectal cancer. What would you say to someone who says, well, why do I need a colonoscopy? I don't have anyone in my family that has had colon cancer? So I would tell them that, you know, colon cancer is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. Um, and regardless of whether they have a family member with colon cancer, they, as they get older, are at an increased risk of colon cancer regardless. So once you get past a certain age, once you get past the screening age, essentially, they are at risk for colon cancer. And that's why everybody does need to get screened in that case. Because colonoscopy is the best way to detect um, polyps, which are precancerous lesions. Let's say somebody wants to schedule a colonoscopy with a gastroenterologist like yourself. What are the steps? So, <clears throat> and so the first thing is that, you know, they obviously would schedule the procedure. 
Um, then, you know, in order to, are you talking about to, how to prepare for the colonoscopy? Well, do they need to see you for a consultation first or do they just call and schedule a colonoscopy? Uh, okay. So if somebody is otherwise healthy, no other medical problems, a majority of, um, of, you know, hospitals and a majority of doctor's offices usually have, you know, an almost like a telephone triage. So it's a telephone screening questionnaire that the, whether it's the assistant, the secretary, whoever answers the phone, um, they're going to pick up. The person says, I would like to schedule a colonoscopy. And most of them have like a basic screening questionnaire that they're going to be asked, such as, you know, do you have any medical problems? Um, do you, you know, do you have any heart disease? You know, certain specific ones. Are you on any blood thinners? They ask a bunch of specific questions. If it seems that the person is generally healthy and no major medical issues, chances are they wouldn't actually need to have a consultation. They would really just need to be able to schedule the procedure. If a person would like to request a consultation because they'd like to see the doctor who's going to be doing the procedure you know, in an office beforehand, then that would be able to be accommodated. Um, some offices like to see everybody prior to the procedure in the office um, before the procedure date, but it really depends on um, the office, whether it's a hospital-based practice, whether it's a private practice, everybody has their own rules, but most people are now leaning towards having screening colonoscopies for healthy people without needing a consultation if the patient is agreeable to that. Um, then after, you know, if it's determined that you don't need to have an office visit, you could just go to the procedure. Then many times a preparation, um, guide is then sent, um, to the patient could be via email. It could be via many of these, um, many of these offices have a patient portal. It could be sent through the patient portal, or if somebody wants to be mailed to their home address, then that could be accommodated as well. And it's important to look at those um, instructions at least two weeks prior to the procedure because there are different things that are necessary in order to have the best kind of colonoscopy preparation possible. So it's going to say about, let's say, 10 to 14 days prior to the procedure, you would need to stop certain things like supplements, certain you know, vitamins that are not essential to the person's um, health. Um, you know, for about a week, five to seven days prior to the procedure, you should be avoiding certain foods, certain, um, you know, nuts, seeds, berries. There's certain things that can stick around in the GI system, in the gut, longer than just the 24-hour period prior to the procedure. So there's certain things on the list that you would be avoiding for seven days prior to the procedure, certain supplements that you should avoid for 14 days prior to the procedure, so that you can have the cleanest preparation possible. Then, um, about 24 hours prior to the procedure, in most preparations, it, it asks you to be on a clear liquid diet only, and that's to start preparing your gut for the colonoscopy. The goal of the colonoscopy is to see the polyps. Polyps are growths on the colon wall. In order to see the colon wall, we have to clear all the stool out. 
Because imagine if you put a scope inside, the, um, the colon's job is to create stool, to make stool and to, you know, get rid of all the waste. However, if we put our colonoscope inside the colon that has a lot of stool, we're not going to be able to see the polyps. So therefore, we're doing all of this preparation to clean out the colon, to allow the colonoscope to see the polyps and remove them so that we can prevent the colon cancer in the future. So after the 24 hours of clear liquids, then the evening before the procedure, you would drink what they call the colonoscopy prep. Essentially, it's a lot of laxative that's taken. And sometimes it's two liters of liquid, Sometimes it's four liters of liquid. Sometimes pill forms of laxatives are added. Sometimes magnesium citrates. There are lots of different types of laxatives that are used for this colonoscopy prep. It will give you diarrhea for a couple of hours. However, then the diarrhea stops and then basically you're all cleaned out. Um, at that point, the next day is when you have your procedure. And to clarify, the diarrhea is done on purpose, right? Correct. So the point of the, the is done is to yes. clean the point, out yes. all the stool. Right. If you have diarrhea while you're taking the colonoscopy prep, which is essentially laxatives, it's done on purpose to clean out all the stool so that your colon is as clean as possibly can be so that we would be able to see the walls of the colon during the procedure and therefore prevents colon cancer. So you can see the colon cancer because there's nothing else there. Basically like a right. hollow tube right? instead of it being filled. Correct. Great. Correct. Two other questions about the colonoscopy itself. And then I also really want to ask you about other types of colon cancer screening. So the questions are, is the procedure painful? Is the patient awake during the procedure? And I guess it's actually three questions. And the third question is, how long is a recovery time after the procedure? Is there a recovery time? Is the colonoscopy painful? Well, I think I'm going to put together the, is it painful and is the person awake in the same, uh, you know, the same uh, category? So essentially, we do give anesthesia for the colonoscopy. Now, a lot of people think that anesthesia is where you're on completely under with a breathing tube and gas and a mask. However, that's not our standard anesthesia for the colonoscopy. There are two types of anesthesia that could be given during the colonoscopy. One of them is called moderate sedation or conscious sedation, and the other type is called deep sedation. Now, I will explain to you what those two things are. So conscious sedation essentially is what it says, conscious. The person is awake. So in general, what's given is um, a medication that's similar to Valium, and it's a medication similar to morphine, and they're given in the IV. And essentially, you're awake but drowsy. Um, you usually don't feel pain because the medication that's similar to morphine dulls the pain. And you don't really remember what's going on because the medication that's similar to Valium will not really will help you not really remember what's going on. So it may be uncomfortable in the middle of the procedure if you get that kind of anesthesia. However, it's not painful. And when you wake up, you may have a little bit of bloating, a little cramping, 
However, it's not real pain that's found after the procedure. The other type of anesthesia that could be given is what we call deep sedation. Deep sedation is when you're a little bit deeper. You're actually sleeping. So you have no idea what's going on during the procedure. And, you know, you're sleeping. However, um, you're in charge of your own vital signs, which means that there's no breathing tube. You're breathing on your own. You're able to keep, you know, your heart, your, your heart beating is by yourself. The blood pressure is by yourself. There's no, you don't need um, machines to help you breathe and to help your heart beat. But you're going to be sleeping, so you're not going to feel anything. You won't feel pain. You won't, you know, you, you won't know what's going on. You'll know right beforehand, you know, the, um, the anesthesia provider, the one that provides the, um, the anesthesia says you're going to be going to sleep now. And then the next thing you know, the procedure is over and you're leaving the procedure room. However, there's no need to need for machines to keep you alive at that time. You are breathing on your own. Your, your heart is beating on your own. That's the kind of anesthesia that we mostly give for the colonoscopy. Painful, it's not supposed to be painful. Patients do not usually feel pain. There may be a little bit of discomfort afterwards, a little bit of bloating. But we actually made that better in the recent years. In the past, during the procedure, air was used in order to allow us to see the colon. So essentially, we would pump a little bit of air in the middle of the procedure into the colon to allow it to inflate. And that will allow us to see the walls of the colon, which would allow us to see the polyps and any precancerous um, areas. Now we actually use what's called carbon dioxide, which is a different gas, and the, it does the same thing that the air does, but it basically, it disappears much more rapidly. So after the procedure, there is much less bloating and much less discomfort than there used to be. Great. If somebody specifically wants an only female uh, staff, physician, anesthesiologist, whoever, um, else might be involved. Can they request that? So when someone goes to um, a, what they call an ambulatory surgery center or a hospital, um, an ambulatory surgery center is essentially a, it's almost like a freestanding surgical center. It's not a private doctor's office. There are usually lots of different providers there. So instead of having one GI doctor. I mean, you would see your own GI doctor. However, there are multiple staff there. So you could have, you know, five or six or seven different, um, you know, technicians there who assist. You can have, let's say, three anesthesiologists who are present, you know, anesthesia providers that are rotating. So, you know, when you go to a center that has lots of staff that are rotating, you can request, you know, an all-female staff. And if it's able to be accommodated that day, then they would do their best to accommodate because many times on given days, you do have both male and female staff available. Obviously, if it's a day that doesn't have a female staff member available, then it wouldn't be able to be accommodated. But a majority of the time, there is a mixture of male and female staff. So most of the time that could be accommodated. In a private office where there's only one technician, for example, and if the technician is not female, then that wouldn't be able to be accommodated. So that's something that you would need to keep in mind 
when you're choosing your facility or doctor where you want your procedure to get done, if that's something that is important. We spoke a lot about colonoscopies, and we know that's the gold standard, right? The best for screening and prevention um, for colorectal cancer. Can you talk a little bit about what other options there are? Let's say someone doesn't want to get a colonoscopy. Um, are there other ways that colon cancer can be detected? So there is a test called Cologuard, which um, essentially is a stool DNA test. So it um, is a kit where you, you know, collect a little bit of like stool on a card, you send it in, and then what it detects is whether there is a potential for colon cancer or what they call an advanced polyp, a polyp at the last stages of its being a polyp, and it's about to become cancer. Now, that particular test is, you know, being advertised as a, you know, a way, you know, just as good to prevent, well, to pick up, let's call it, to pick up colon cancers, to detect colon cancers. While it's true that colon cancers many times will be detected on the cologuard and that a polyp that is almost cancer will very likely be detected. Um, smaller polyps, the ones that have the potential to become cancer and at its earlier stages are not going to be picked up by Cologuard because those particular polyps do not make that particular DNA yet that is picked up by the test. The test will only picked up, pick up more one that's more advanced, one that's farther down the road to become cancer or it's already cancer. You know, in other cancer types, when we don't have a test that will pick up teeny tiny early polyps and we can only right now at this time pick up, you know, advanced cancers, then this would be a remarkable finding. So for example, if I had a Cologuard equivalent for pancreatic cancer, with it, you know, without a doubt, I would send every patient for one. But that's not what we have here. Here we have a screening test, a colonoscopy, that can pick up little polyps that are at the earliest stages of abnormality, of being not normal. And we can take them out before they become advanced, as opposed to picking up a cancer. You know, that's why at this time, I would recommend doing the test that's able to pick up the earlier stages. How often does a Cologuard have to be done? Is it once a year? Is it once every three years? And how does that compare to colonoscopy? So Cologuard, usually about once every three years, you know, it's, you know, some, some people do them once a year, you know, it, it could be done once every three years. Um, the colonoscopies are done, you know, once every 10 years, if it's a clean colon, no, um, no polyps, good, good preparation, no family history of colon cancer, and then that would be every 10 years. However, if there are polyps found, then, you know, it would need to be sooner. And the thing about Cologuard 
is that if a cologuard is positive, then that means that you definitely need a colonoscopy. Thing is that if it's negative, it doesn't mean you definitely don't need a colonoscopy. So that's why it's, you know, that's why there's some issues with that compared to colonoscopy that it's a visual exam. You know, you're visualizing. Do you see a polyp? You remove it. So another test that's actually done as a colon cancer screening is what's called a CT colonography. It's a CAT scan. It's a specialized CAT scan that you can do to pick up, um, you know, polyps in the colon. You still have to prep for that test the same way that you prepare for a colonoscopy. So you would have to, you know, stay away from certain foods for seven days. You would have to be on clear liquids for 24 hours prior to the colon, the, uh, the CAT scan. You would have to drink the laxative. You would get the, the diarrhea after you drink the laxative because this particular CAT scan um, is done in a way that you want to see the polyps. You don't want to see, you know, stool in the colon. Um, so that particular test, you know, it's not invasive because you're not putting any camera inside. You are picking up polyps in the earlier stages, which is true, but they also have limitations, which is that, you know, the uh, smaller polyps, less than what we call six millimeters. So polyps can be in, you know, polyps are in millimeter size. So small polyps can be like two millimeters, three millimeters. We're able to see those on a colonoscopy and remove them. You know, anything that's larger than six millimeters is really considered to be a decent sized polyp. So one of the limitations of a CAT scan colonography is that they can't pick up polyps less than six millimeters, which means that one of the benefits that you get of a colonoscopy, which is to pick up early stages, you lose on that CAT scan. The second thing is that if they do find a polyp, you have to do a colonoscopy anyway to remove it because you can't remove anything on a CAT scan. What about fecal occult blood tests? Are some doctors still offering that? So there are doctors that are still offering fecal occult blood tests, uh, stool tests. So those particular stool tests, so essentially they give you a card you put some stool on the card and you send it back and it tells you if there's blood there, which if there is blood there, then the doctor would say, okay, you need to have a colonoscopy. The problem is that those particular tests are not very sensitive or specific, which means that if you see, um, if it's a positive test, it doesn't mean that there's a colon cancer. It doesn't mean that there's precancer. It can mean that your hemorrhoid just bled the night before. It can mean that, you know, there may be some uh, material in your colon that could cause what we call a false positive. Um, or it could be a, if it's a negative test, it might mean that for whatever reason, the, the little blood that the colon cancer had let out did not show up on that card. So therefore, it's really not a great screening test. Um, if someone has that test done, it doesn't really give you know, the doctor a good sense of whether a colonoscopy should be done or not, whether they have any concerning polyps or something that could potentially become colon cancer. So would you agree that 
if you were to generally give advice about colonoscopies, which is what we're talking about, the number one choice would be a colonoscopy and the number two choice would be Cologuard or CT colonography. What would be one, two, and three? So, yeah. The number one choice would be colonoscopy um, for the reasons that we were discussing. Number two choice, it depends on the circumstance. So the number two choice would either be Cologuard or the CAT scan, depending on the circumstances. So if I have someone who has, you know, they're otherwise okay medically, but there's one problem is that they could not, they cannot get anesthesia safely. So they may have an underlying lung problem that getting anesthesia would be more dangerous or risky than the average population. In someone like that, I would say, let's start with a, with a CAT scan, colonography. At least it would tell me if there's something that would be big enough to put the person under the risk of the anesthesia. Um, in other cases, with the Cologuard, if someone doesn't have a family history of colon cancer and they are hesitant about getting a colonoscopy, sometimes the Cologuard um, helps them figure out if they want it, as in like if it's a positive Cologuard, they're more likely to get a colonoscopy. But it's also a false reassurance sometimes if it's a negative test and then it convinces them that they don't need a colonoscopy. So, you know, a Cologuard is better than nothing, but it's not as good as a colonoscopy. Thank you so, so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. Sure. If anybody wants to learn more about Dr. Abramowitz and her work, head to our website and to the Joma uh, podcast description from today. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A.org, or email us at health at joma.org.